welcome to Lazarus Theatre Company's new podcast, Spotlight On, where we turn the spotlight on to reveal the people behind the scenes, those who make Lazarus work, the creatives, the artists, the process, the creation. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm Gavin Harrington, editor, producer of Lazarus Theatre Company. I'm on my Todd today. I'm all alone. Um, Ricky's not here. He might join us a little later on. Um, but while he's not here, I've got a little uh, confession to make. Um, unfortunately, last week on the episode with Misha Colombo, I inaccurately uh, said how many points Alice Emery got in the 60 seconds. So I have to make amends, say a massive apology to Alice Emery. Uh, she actually got 16 correct, not 15, not 14 rather. Um, which means she was at the lead, top of the leaderboard on 16 and she still is at the top of the leaderboard uh, on 16 because Misha only got 15. So Misha, you were the winner for a week, but unfortunately I have to retract that win from you. You are second still um, and we'll see tonight, uh, today, whether, um, whether our guest can get more than 16. Um, this week, I'm talking to theatre and opera director, activist and Lazarus associate, Lizanne van Overbeek. After training in the Le Netherlands, Lizanne moved to London to study musical theatre at Trinity Laban Conservatoire of Music and Dance. Whilst at Trinity Laban, she developed a specific interest in classical and physical theatre. She founded Over the Pond Productions in 2018, telling stories from and about Europe in an effort to bring people together. Lizanne first worked with Lazarus in 2016 as an actor in our production of Euripides' The Bacchae at the Blue Elephant Theatre. She then went on to assistant direct our production of Marlowe's Edward II and our co-production with Bath Spa University of Shakespeare's Measure for Measure, both at Greenwich Theatre in 2018. Lizanne, thank you for joining us and welcome to Spotlight On. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. How are you? <laughs> I am good. Well, as good as you can be, I guess, at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. Things are hard. Things are really difficult at the moment, but powering through and just looking forward to when times are getting better. Good, good. They they seem to, well, the weather's certainly getting better, isn't it? We, we're no snow anymore. So that's, that's some light on the horizon. Daffodils out. Um, and hopefully, if the roadmap, hold, if the roadmap holds, we're... Uh, we're looking at some being able to see people again outside from the 29th and then um, indoors and pubs. We'll be able to go have a drink again. It's been so long, Lizanne. It's been so long since we've had a drink. I yeah. can't wait. <laughs> well, it's been over a year now, over a year since we last had a drink. And I might get onto that a little later, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I just miss I just miss going out and going to pubs, going to theatres. Can't wait for stuff to open up again. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, tell us how did the theatre shutdown and the subsequent lockdowns affect your work? Um, majorly, actually. Um, in uh, I was about to have one of the busiest years of my career so far, and suddenly everything got cancelled. And it was not even that everything got cancelled in one go. It was that one show got cancelled and then a few weeks later you hear that another show gets cancelled and it was just like the band-aid didn't get ripped off. It got pulled off very, very slowly on the hairiest section of your body. Like, one hit, one hair at a time. Yeah. Oh, it yeah. was awful. Gosh. It was so awful. And then I was meant to do something in January and that was sort of the thing that I was holding on to with dear life um, and, and kept my hopes up. And then that got cancelled too. And that I think that one was the biggest blow when that got cancelled. And I was just sort of momentarily lost a lot of hope at that time. Um, yeah. If it's not if it's not too painful, Zen, um, have they been cancelled or postponed or where, where do they sit? Um, a few of them have been postponed um, and a few of them have been cancelled or changed so they become a different became a different show so one show that i was meant to direct myself we decided to change and make it more flexible um just in case we still have covid uh regulations by the time things open again or by the time i'm meant to do it that we can sort of adapt as we go along 
Um, so instead of thinking of big ensemble shows, we're thinking more of one or two hangars or, or small ensembles. I think I think a lot of people are doing that, aren't they? They we still want to be active. We still want to be creating work, but we have to just on a business level, we have to kind of make sense of of what the world might be like and what the theatre landscape might be like, and 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 kind of take those into consideration. So, ensemble work for us at Lazarus means potentially something different. Now we you know we're a large scale ensemble company. Um, how do we keep an ensemble? while only having few people on stage. And that's that's the kind of thing that we're talking about a lot at the moment. Um, mm. Do you pare down the work or do you keep the scale of the work but do it in a different way, I guess? Um, so I, I imagine you're having quite similar conversations about the projects that you're working on. Yeah, and it's like, I particularly work in opera. So there's a lot of operas require like a big chorus. Um, there like there's there are operas that are like one handers or two handers but the ones that i want to do of course are always the ones that sort of require quite a lot of people mm. and how to do that and especially not even just for the amount of people that you have on stage or the distance that you need to have between them but also financially like financially we're in a really precarious position where it's just you don't know if, when people want to come back if they feel safe enough if you're gonna be able to get the money back from tickets um it just makes everything very insecure but i'm really hoping that people will just rush back to the theaters and yeah we can hope like they we? rush back to the pubs <laughs> well yes yeah yeah probably too fast but um that's the thing isn't it that the the government or the powers that be can say that you know we can open theatres on a certain date and, and we still have to socially distance. And then five weeks later, we can go back to full capacity. But that doesn't necessarily mean people are going to buy tickets, right? People are going to go to the theatre. Um, I guess we have to wait and see, don't we? Um, yeah, and I think theatre is also very careful. Like everyone is so eager to have stuff ready for as soon as we're allowed to open that we've got productions ready so we can start selling stuff again and making work. Uh, but at the same time, it's, it's like it, everything wants to be as last minute as possible because we don't know how long we'll be allowed to do anything. Yeah. Um, so fingers crossed that we'll be able it, to keep going. It's difficult to be honest, open and transparent and upfront with people about that in terms of the people you're engaging in the work. Um, there's, there's, you know, there's got to be a certain point where, you know, that's not enough time for them to prepare or that's not enough time for them to, to take time out of whatever else they're doing. Because um, of course, as artists, we have seven different jobs, don't we? Um, and, and even more so now we, you know, we have to have to support ourselves. Um, uh, universal uh, pay for the arts from the government would be amazing, wouldn't it? That's what we need. Good as me, that's what we need. But that's what we need to keep art alive anyway. Well, indeed, uh. yeah, yeah. So many <laughs> other countries um, understand that, but yeah. How do we how do we make our government understand that? It's hard to be creative when you're struggling to pay the bills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, have you have you been able to do any work in the last year since since the theatre shut down? Or... Um, in the beginning, I was very much like, no, I am not engaging in any online theatre. Um, well, I was watching it, like I was watching all the national theatre stuff when it came out, and I was watching like, my friends do lots of online stuff. Um, but I was like, I'm just not interested in it as a creative person, like me, myself, it's not my medium. Um, and then August hit and I was talking to a friend and we were like, you know what, let's just do something and start making some videos. And we like just to discover and, and work with material that we haven't worked with before. So with my company over the Pond Productions, we started like sort of a monthly video release where we're exploring oratorio music. So oratorio is uh, traditionally more religious music within the sort of opera world. And it's sort of a style of music that I've never really explored. So we thought, let's take art like songs here and there, maybe some duets. And we sort of created poetic videos around it so these were not videos meant to just catch your eye and be like music video boom 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 they were meant to sort of more convey a message about the connections that we lost within lockdown and the things that we're missing and the things that we 
need in our lives right now. So it was a nice way to sort of stay creative in a time when that felt really difficult. Uh, and we tried to make sure that we didn't put any pressure on ourselves. So we just wanted to, like, if it failed, it failed. If it was rubbish, it was rubbish. But we were just doing stuff without the added pressure of having to sell tickets uh, or having to get good reviews because it didn't really matter. We just wanted to make stuff. Uh, and that felt really, really great. And it sort of did, kept my, my, like, it sort of kept me in the creative zone so that I can be ready now, or now that things are picking up again, to jump back into it. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe that's, we, we kind of, well, I want to try and look at positives as much as I can. And maybe that's one of the positives out of, out of what's happened in the last year is that, that you're able and, and you are working on a project that maybe you wouldn't have done um, if, you, if you had the busiest year um, yet in directing, maybe. Yeah, no, I definitely probably wouldn't have. Um, and I learned a lot about different composers and different uh, styles of music that I normally would never have touched. Mm -hmm. uh, we've done like contemporary music as well recently, and um, I've never worked with a contemporary composer before. So actually to be in touch with someone who actually is alive um, <laughs> yeah. whilst you're doing the work suddenly is like, oh, this is actually like you want to do them justice and you want to make work that they like as well. Um, so that was quite interesting and to work very closely with the opera singer who uh, Susanna McRae who I work with she liked to work really closely with her and and just go for the creative process together um, something you normally don't have the luxury to in opera so that was very nice that's good that's good I imagine um, I was having a conversation with a group of artists and producers in theatre um, executives uh, this week and talking about the fringe and 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 I imagine that on the 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 opera that you're doing is is just as fraught in terms of timelines and and you, you just never have enough time and you know let alone the money or whatever um, the time is is always precious isn't it so being able it's to take always this time. precious mm -hmm. yeah I like I've worked with operas like last year last year the year before 2019. Um, I directed an opera based on Romeo and Juliet and we did it in six days and that felt pressured but then I've also worked on other operas where you've had like weeks or like almost two months and even then you're like but we, we, we still are not done we're still haven't finished like there's so much that we can still do and mm -hmm. to make it better and always there's always too little time too little money um, but you just got to do it yeah. <laughs> that's part of the joy out of it as well it is and and that's the great thing about um a, a performative medium there is an opening night there is a first preview you have to have to have something on stage for the audience that's paid um so that pressure parameters are always good in work so you know whether it be we only have five actors to do a play with 20 characters or we only have three weeks to or six days to rehearse this um you have to come up with something there is no there is no not coming out with something so yeah and it, i think does... that's what made me struggle as well in lockdown is that i didn't have parameters mm. i'm so used to working with deadlines and just getting stuff done and be able to create the work and suddenly being like we don't know whether this is going to end and mm. not having a specific thing to work towards suddenly made it very difficult it's kind of that thing where um I don't know who said this. I heard someone saying this recently. Um, if you tell someone to finish a story from the sentence that you've written down on the page, they can easily finish that story. But if you give them a blank piece of paper and say, write a story, it's infinitely harder. And so the world's your oyster. We're, we're all sitting at home doing nothing. The world's your oyster. Be creative. I mean, what you're just paralyzed by options, right? Yeah, oh my goodness. Like, I always get this question of what is the opera that you want to direct and just like say something. And of course, I got a few things in mind that um, I would love to do, but it's so much easier when someone just says, here is the opera that we're going to do. Think of something for it. Um, it's, it's, it's that blank paper idea. It's like, oh, but there's too many ideas. I can't think of which specific one I want. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's loads. Yeah. So we were just talking about, um, as you take a drink of your gin, uh, we were talking about the last time that we had a drink together. 
um uh it was it was almost a year ago so um no it must have been just over a year ago now um we you came to the final night of Macbeth our final production before shutdown um you saw the show uh then you hung around um you knew some people in the show so you know us included so you managed to get into the closing night party um what do you remember of well first of all what's it like seeing a show made by a production company or theater company that you've worked with quite a lot um what's it like seeing their show knowing where they've come from and and what they're doing and 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 how they work is it like oh i've seen that i've seen that i know how they did that or you know tell us tell us about that first jealousy um <laughs> <laughs> i just want to be involved because i know how, how your process works and and what had to happen to make that come on stage and for me to be able to see it uh, and the excitement like the main thing that i re remember myself from the lazarus rehearsal room is excitement and um a lot of stress but um it's mainly just very exciting and the work that you're creating together as an ensemble like as a creative you're part of the ensemble um and really just wanting to be a part of that so watching Macbeth and and several other things of you guys that I've watched I'm just like I just wish I was part of that company and watching it right now and still being part of of that group of people that's on stage and feeling what they're going through um so yeah it's the first thing is jealousy I just <laughs> wish I was I was a part of something making making oh. something that cool <laughs> well it's always nice to see you in the audience because we know we've got you know one one nice kind person in the audience that's going to clap at the end so it's always yeah i'm sure you're gonna have more than one nice person to clap well at the end, we, so. we also know that we're going to have a, a, a good robust conversation about it afterwards as well which is always nice yeah. yes yeah yeah no it was a great show like that night was like i always hate coming to the last night but for some reason that was the only night i could make it um, because I just want to talk to you guys as soon as the curtain goes. It's like, mm. I want to be able to talk to you guys. And there's always the get out after a final night. So I have to wait for like an hour or two. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I have a few drinks and then then I can finally talk to you guys. So I always am like, oh, come on, get out, get out, get out. Um, but like, it, it is the excitement of having done like that final show and how everyone comes out and it's just like, what has just happened to us like this is amazing uh the endorphins that are going through the room are great yeah i mean that that company kind of ran at full pelt through that run like it was just it was it, it was over before it began really and so coming out the other end a lot of those faces in that closing that party were just sheer like how are the where, where how are we at the final night where, how did we do that how how are yeah. we at, yeah um yeah, and that specific one, I think there were a lot of added endorphins because I think everyone was aware of what was about to happen, that we were about to go into the lockdown. Hmm. Um, so everyone sort of felt the tension of this might be the last night that we'll be going out for a while. So let's make it a good one. Yeah. And and the success um, of being able to finish the run of the show as well before yeah, anything happened. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because there was yeah. such a tension. So everyone was like, when is it going to happen? When is it going to happen? No one knew. Yeah. It was a few days later, wasn't it? Like, it was, I think it was a week later, week or two later. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was all, all that anyone could talk about, but yeah. I mean, we had, we had a production in rehearsals when, when we were told to not go to the theater. Um, and that was just after Macbeth. Um, can you, you've just said something that maybe some of our listeners don't know what we mean. Um, what is a get out? What does that mean? Uh, it's cleaning <laughs> <laughs> on, a, on a Lazarus show with that much blood. Yeah, definitely. Usually it's, yeah, it's um, at the end of a, of a run. So when you finish all the performances, you're, you're cleaning up the theater because the next show needs to go in there. So you're, you're making sure all the sets is off the stage, that all the dressing rooms are tidy, that none of your stuff is left behind, which often does happen. Um, yeah that's a get out just to make sure that all like all the lights are back the way they were mm -hmm. so that the next person can use them um and your feeds are like that like one show in the next one goes uh, yeah one show out the next one goes in 
Um, so literally you get out of the theater you, you just get out, get out yeah. and you've got an hour I mean, to do it and yeah it was i remember being with edward the second that was crazy because the panto just got out and mm. like and i was having to just get in there as soon as possible yeah yeah because we've got uh, into a show tomorrow <laughs> yeah yeah our get yeah. in is, is a day or you know that whole world that whole room changes in a day yeah yeah, and then all the actors have to come and yeah that's it is it is magic and they call it the magic of theater don't they and i think i think that's what i'm interested in um with this podcast is talking to people that we know and love and have worked with a lot and talking about the process of theater making and because often a lot of a lot of my friends aren't in the theater world they haven't haven't made you know been part of that before and so it's it's all a bit otherworldly it's all a bit unknown to them and so um having a little bit of an insight understanding what i'm i mean when i say oh, i've got to get out tonight or i've got to get in tomorrow or like what what is it you know get in what what do you mean but yeah yeah what does um, it mean why do yeah. you have to be there every day or why are you there till midnight and yeah why am i there till yeah. midnight lasanne yeah <laughs> we all ask that question don't yeah. we why wow. am i here this time? well it's because we've got a first performance tomorrow that's why yeah. yeah we need to get that one light right at the right yeah. point yeah. to shine that, where we need it to shine that light is pivotal yeah absolutely mm, absolutely it tells the whole story <laughs> <laughs> yeah um well let's as we're talking about lazarus and 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 the work that you've seen um we're gonna let's take a little trip down memory lane um, starting with the back eye in 2016. So in the back eye, you were in the company, you're a, a cast member. So, um, so we might get into how you became a director in a little while, but, uh, what was it, what was it like? Well, we certainly will. Um, what, what, what do you remember about the back eye? It was amazing. I mean, I love that company it was, it was such a nice group. Like I think that whole group was so tight um everyone who was in the cast we were like really good friends um and the the process of creating it was a little bit different i think than most shows you guys have done before because we wrote our own text mm. um so that was a big part of the process of telling the stories of the women who were the backpack because in the original there are choruses um, and I need to remember this right because I haven't really revisited it since. Uh, but there, are, in Greek theatre, there's a chorus that often tells half the story. But we decided that we wanted to tell stories from women's perspective, but also more mo modern stories about it. So we had to write sort of our own pieces. Um, and that was really, really fun and really creative to get to do that. Um, and I, def I made some amazing friends during that production it was pivotal in my career but um in how I perceived myself as an actress and how I wanted to keep going in the arts um it just showed me what theater can be mm -hmm. I think yeah yeah you very guys got exciting good uh, I'm glad to hear that you guys got to work very closely with the amazing David Bullen on your on your text didn't you so everyone got to write great. yeah everyone got to write um something and some some people chose to write fiction some people chose to write spoken word some people chose to write something that was very personal and 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 part of their life um and then you all worked with David and and kind of brought brought a kind of stageness to it, I guess, brought a performative aspect mm. to, to what you'd written. Um, I know that some of them you didn't touch at all because they were just ready to roar and ready to go. And that's kind of what, what it needed. And others, others had a little bit of work on them. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> Mine you, actually got cut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you came out at the end, didn't you? You, you, you were kind yeah. of, yeah. So you were the wife of, of Pentheus. Is that right? Yeah. I had a bit of a different role then the other back I had. Mm. Um, and I, I was the wife of Pentheus, but originally in the original Greek tragedy, it was the father of Pentheus, but you guys decided to change it into the right. wife of Pentheus. Right. Um, so my role, like the whole company, except for Pentheus and myself, became Bacchae. Even if they didn't start as Bacchae, they became Bacchae throughout the piece. Mm -hmm. So uh, visually, we sort of showed that by having everyone in suits in the beginning and then slowly everyone got down to sort of their 
there's slips that they were wearing um, and, and very nude color, colored clothes. And I was the only character by the end of the show still in a, in a suit, right. which felt very strange um, to be there, especially in the bows. And I just remember looking around me and being like, I am actually the only person wearing like, like a full three-piece suit here. Um, and yeah, so in the end we decided to sort of, because I wrote a monologue that came after Pentheus's mother's uh, monologue. Mm -hmm. And it just felt a bit like it was too many monologues too close together. Right. And too much of sort of the same um, message that was being conveyed, which was mm -hmm. about love and, and, and loving for Pentheus. Um, and so we decided to write a scene instead sort of to round up uh, the piece and it was fun because in the end like a whole scene got written that wasn't originally in the piece that I got to do so actually right. and I got to play off people which was mm -hmm. brilliant yeah um because that's it isn't it I mean I don't I don't know if our listeners know much about I think Alice spoke a little bit about what what devising means but you we didn't go in to that process with a full completed script there were you know there were good 10 12 monologues that were written during that process and were inserted into the piece so yeah, yeah it wasn't until probably well press night the the show we freeze the show so there's no changes we, we do upkeep but there's no changes that happen to the show after press night but we had two previews before that so um there were changes happening every day weren't there um, oh my goodness, point, yeah. every single day. I remember that we changed the complete set like a week before we went to open. Sure. And then, yeah, we were doing the the, the fabrics that were going to come down. We just yeah. completed those. And then I remember after the first preview in the opening chore choreography, mm -hmm. like movement section, um, I was meant to be at the front starting off. And then suddenly I got changed to... The back because of some some storytelling thing that I can't quite remember, mm. um, and and I got it was just a better place for me to be, and just having to relearn a complete choreography from a different spot in the room, uh, and it's a small space, the Blue Elephant, but like changing just two meters away from where you used to be suddenly completely changes the choreography that you're doing. That's the rest of the um, show, right? That's how you start the show. And <laughs> where do I go from here? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Where am I meant to be? Um, yeah. yeah, it's completely changed. And I remember I also got a different monologue that was like, like that just one of the, from, from the original piece, mm. um, like two days before we were meant to do our first preview. So I had to learn like this massive monologue. Uh, before you did, death, you did it you i did, did it. it with david bullen's help um i remember <laughs> standing at the top of the stairs just running it over yeah. and over and over again and i got there in the end but it was like yeah oh, okay i can do this we can <laughs> so, do this sometimes there are there are some people who are who are affected more than others by those kind of looming first performances right and i think you did an amazing job and, and you you know you did it and and no one would have known that you had those those words two days before. So um, kudos to you. Yeah, well done. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, so then then you changed it up a little bit and you came on board um, for the Greenwich run of Edward II uh, in 2018. So something so between 2016 and 2018, something changed. You went from being an actor to being a director. How what 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 happened there? How did you become a director? <laughs> Well, you know that even though I'm saying like the back eye was amazing, it was also the show that made me want to stop acting. Right. Um, I discovered through that, like this is probably the biggest role I've had at that point in any show before. Um, struggling after music, like after studying musical theatre at Trinity, like struggling to get any roles really and doing the struggling acting life. Um, and finally having a big role. And actually I discovered that I didn't enjoy the performing as much. Um, and I, I love the process. I love the creating. Like I really discovered that like once you started to run, it wasn't sort of the thing that gave me a buzz that made me happy. Um, it was the actual rehearsing side of things. So after that, I was thinking a lot and, and sort of doing a bit of rediscovering 
and my partner who is a choreographer um he was working on an opera that summer and they were still looking for an assistant director uh and i was like well if i love the process and the creating of things maybe i should try some directing maybe i should try and assist someone and see what that's like uh so with a little bit of his help he managed to get me an interview and it was between a few people um, but the director and I really hit it off and she got me on this opera and I fell in love. It literally was like coming home. Um, I, I felt like I was good at this. I was finally like I was getting paid quite continuously after that because I suddenly got like job after job after job. So I felt like I must be doing something right that I'm not like doing one show a year, but I'm doing quite continuously like a few gigs in a row. Um, and met some incredible people, like discovering this whole new world of theater, which I love the epicness of, of an opera, which is probably also why I fell in love with classical theater, because it tells these epic stories about gods and goddesses and epic love and, and also very human stories at the same time, like things that we all feel, but just put in this mythical storyline. Um, and with this beautiful music, which as a teenager, I completely rejected. I remember my mum's boyfriend just getting really frustrated with me because I refused to listen to classical music because it wasn't cool. And now I'm like, I, I will listen to this for pleasure at any moment. This is just, it, it, it's so beautiful and it's so touching. Um, yeah, it felt like coming home. I'm probably stealing this from someone else and I'm sure I've heard it said by someone else before me, but opera is like blue cheese. You, 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 you start to like it the older you get. Um, you don't like it as a child. You don't like it as a, teen, as a teenager, but you, you, you kind of understand its uh, beauty um, when you get a little bit older, maybe. Yeah. I like, I think with me, it's sort of, felt like I, I as a child I quite liked it um I remember one of my first theater experiences being uh on holiday in Italy and we went to Verona where they've got this beautiful it's not called a Colosseum but it's like the Colosseum that's in Rome but a smaller version um forgot its name right now but it's 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 a beautiful open air Roman theater and I remember we were went, went to see an opera there and I just remember this woman standing in like a chorus all around the edges of this building and seeing that as like a six-year-old and being entranced by it and absolutely finding it so beautiful. Um, and then there was this great actor who was actually on Sesame Street in Holland, who also for fun did opera and he made children's operas. So I had like cassettes, um, of, of of Carmen and the magic flute and uh and, and different operas as well that he's done uh and loving it but then sort of in my teenage years I went through a bit of a dip where I was <laughs> refusing to listen right. to anything but musical theater right so it's much <laughs> less like blue cheese and more like um like a I brie know. I think yeah okay so brie that you liked when you were a child and now you're coming back to it again yeah now that you get past the uh the rind of it all yeah yeah okay. absolutely yeah <laughs> So Edward II at the Greenwich Theatre, um, what was that, how was that process? What, what do you remember of that? Um, so I worked on the revival of it. So when we, so you guys had already done it for Tristan Bates and then it came back at the Greenwich. And I felt in the beginning very much like I was catching up because I hadn't managed to catch the one at the Tristan Bates. So I very much came into it blind. Um, and half the cast had been in the original cast and then there were a few new people. So I wasn't the only one who came into it blind. And what was great about that process is that it wasn't just a quick 
okay, this is how we did it last time. Let's get everyone back in the right places, put the new people in, like how revivals often work. Um, Ricky completely went from scratch and we just completely rediscovered it, um, which helped me massively because of course I came into it fresh. Um, and it really connected the company again. So even though it was a slightly different company, it put everyone together and put everyone exactly the same wavelength instead of thinking, oh, these people know more than the others. Um, and what was also amazing was that we were actually rehearsing in the Greenwich Theatre. So the Greenwich Theatre became home. Uh, we knew where everything was. We knew where the changing rooms were. We knew the theatre itself. Like, um, and And... It was stressful as well in terms of trying to just figure out how everything was going to function with blood showers and working with exactly the things that I always say you shouldn't be working with, which is confetti and <laughs> blood. Confetti um, and any, anything liquid, yeah. Yeah, liquid <laughs> and sand. I hate working with sand as well, but luckily Ricky didn't use that this time. No, uh, maybe next time. Yeah, maybe next time. Maybe next time. Um, so is, is that is that normal to to not be rehearsing in the venue? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, if I can only tell from personal experiences, was primarily opera. Uh, but usually you rehearse like I've been rehearsing in like big uh, community halls or churches or rehearsal venues, um, mainly really, really big halls, and then just have a, a, a LX tape on the floor to figure out where everything is. And then you get to the theatre fresh. Um, often because operas, especially in sort of spring, summer, it often works in like a festival version. So um, a theatre will be doing four operas in a row so you can't get near the theater before you start there before you start the tech um, because another opera will be playing um financially that's probably just the best way to do it and also people like sort of the festival time like it's just like the races are always at a specific time of year or a football league will be at a specific time of year is is to get people hyped up and want to see like all four operas in a row um, I feel like they're part of a community. Um, is the process of directing an opera the same as a play or are they different or how, how, what's your process? What's your process as a director? Um, it is, I would say it's quite different. I would like it to be more similar. Um, I think one of the main differences with opera is that the, I think the expectancy, the expectancy, what's expected of the singers is um, very set. Like opera singers get trained very specifically, like when they come into a rehearsal room, they need to know all the music and they need to know exactly where they're gonna do that high note, where, how they're gonna breathe, where the breath is gonna be. Like they probably would have gone through several music sessions and several private lessons as well with their own teachers before they even see you. Um, so you come into a room where everyone already knows exactly what they're meant to be singing. You just now need to put the acting on top of it. And of course the singing is a massive part of the acting. So it all influences each other. And you can't just have people like jumping over each other when you feel like they should be jumping here, but actually they can't sing that note if they're jumping. Um, they need to stand there and look at the conductor at that point, because otherwise they won't be on the right notes at the right time. Um, so there's definitely like, in some ways that's very constricting because you suddenly have to, you can't just do whatever you want, but in some ways it's also extremely liberating. Like what we were talking about earlier, when you have constrictions, sometimes it's easier to be creative and you'll find different ways to tell the story and you'll find different creative outlets um to do that and uh, I really enjoy it like I I what I love about opera is that the text like it's not just the text where the acting comes from like so, like it's, it's the music itself that's actually the main body of where the emotion and 
the, the feelings and the intentions come from. Like quite often the text is just being repeated and repeated quite a lot of times, but just sung in different ways with different feelings or anger or sadness um, uh, or different breath spacing where they take a breath and that will make all the difference because you suddenly see like, oh, something has happened there. Why she is, that's why she's taking a breath here. So there's a lot more things to sort of listen to and take into consideration. Um, but that is, it's like a puzzle. And I love that puzzle. I think, I think it's a very exciting journey that you're going through with the singers as well. Because when you're suddenly like, they have learned from their singing teacher that they should sing it in a certain way and take the breath there. But when you then start asking like, why are you taking that breath there? Oh, because I can sing that note then. No, like there needs to be a reason why you, why you take that breath. And that's not just to sing that note. Like, why are you singing that note? It's because you're feeling something so strongly. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a very exciting process, I think. How do you learn all this? I mean, uh, uh, not, not, not having directed opera before, where do, where do you go? What do you do? Um, you try. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you just try it out. Mm -hmm. um, I... I, like I fell into it by accident. I was lucky that I could already read music um, because of course I studied musical theater. So like the emotions coming from the music was very familiar to me. Like musical theater is very similar in that way where a lot of what you're trying to say, like there's a lot of repetition in there as well, um, but it always feels different. It can never be the same thing that you're feeling if you're singing something twice. So there's always a reason. Um, and that felt very similar to me. The main difference, I think, of course, the music is very complicated and it's very complex. And um, it's also in a different language, which can put also another sort of layer of trickiness to it. You can choose to do it in English. There's some very good English translations. Um, but I think it's also because it's technically so straining opera. Um, that you really need to sort of learn how to like learn to understand the singers and what they need, what they need from you and where you need to support them. And you need to understand what they need to do to be able to sing it, because some of these roles are so difficult. Like if you listen to the Queen of the Nights, that bit that everyone knows from the Magic Flute that everyone will always sort of try and sing is actually one of the hardest pieces of music written like I'm sure lots of uh, classical music like uh, professional like composers and conductors and singers might not agree with me but it's definitely one of the hardest pieces to sing well harder pieces to sing um, and you need a lot of technique for that. It's not something you can just sing in the shower. Like you need to think about so many different things. And as an audience um, member, you expect perfection from your opera singers, right? They, they have absolutely, to be Absolutely, because you know it immediately if they're not. Mm. Because then suddenly you go like, oh, ooh, that, ooh, you, like you notice it. Whilst if someone sings really well and they've really got that technique down and they can act as well, like, so, like you know, it's like a lot of being asked of these singers. Um, then it feels like it's the easiest thing in the world as an audience member. Like it needs, you need to be able to just take it in and enjoy it and feel it. Mm. Um, and that's the hardest thing to do. I think for acting as well, like to make the audience feel like they can just relax in their seats is one of the hardest things to do as an actor. Because if an audience member is going to sit there the whole time and be like, Ooh, are they gonna like, I'm, I'm not, I don't believe that hand. What is he doing with his hand right there? Or why would he pick up that glass? You're like, you're not relaxing. You're not enjoying it. You're not taking it in. You're not feeling with them. You're watching where they put their hands. Um, even if you, even if you're watching a mother rip the head off her son or um, a king being killed by a red hot poker up the bum, you still, as an audience member, you you can if everything is safe on stage then you can relax into it and let it happen if you're worried yeah. about the safety of someone whether that be you know a, a, an aberrant hand or a or a um the poker goes the wrong way or or someone is not safe and secure in their technique and singing then you can't 
you can't enjoy is not the right word when <laughs> with those examples but you can't kind of inhabit it and let it happen can you yeah you can't live it mm. you can't feel it as an audience member and that's why you come into the theater you come in to feel something mm-hmm. at least i do yeah. um and i think most people if they've seen something that's really good they'll walk away and will have felt something mm. Mm. and that you can only do that if an actor or a singer or a the dancer has good technique and knows what they're doing and can make you feel that. Yeah. I like that word, live it. Well, two words, but um, you just said live it. Uh, I've never really thought about that before, but that is, that is the, it's one of the many, but one of the, one of the many things that differentiates uh, live theater from, from film or books or, or other art forms is that, is that you get to live it. You're in that room with them you yeah. you know that that's the only time this is going to happen because tomorrow it'll be a different group of people in that room the, the audience will be different they'll be reacting differently which means that the actors will be acting differently they'll be reacting differently um so yeah live it i think um being allowed to live it um is something that i definitely look for in, in pieces of theater yeah yeah and it's definitely something that i think a lot of people are missing and there's something re- like I spoke to a lot of friends who were watching like all the online theater and they sort of struggled with it because on one side you're like, oh, I feel like I should be watching it because I should be being creative and I should be watching theater and just using this time during lockdown to to learn more and to gain more experience and to to feel like I've, I've learned about five or six new plays, but actually really struggling watching a play on TV whilst when you're watching the same play in the theater and you're really feeling it and you're going through what like you you're empathizing with the people on stage you'll have a completely different experience which is why like i felt had very mixed feelings about like when the national theater did this i thought it was a, an amazing thing where they shared all their plays and were streaming them because it definitely caught people's attention and brought theater to people who might never have even bothered going to the national but at the same time like so it could bring people in definitely but it also could push people away because some people might be like well that's boring or what are they doing like i don't understand that i don't get it whilst if they'd actually had managed to get to the theater um they might have felt completely different of course it's a very difficult position because a lot of people can't make it to the theater so that's the only way to bring it to them um it just it it, you just wish that you could just get everyone in um and could share this amazing experience with everyone yeah i think this this kind of explosion of of live streaming and and streaming in general for 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 theater is great for all those people who aren't there, whether that be uh, access issues or that is geographical issues. You know, I, I've i been able to watch plays being performed at the International Theatre of Amsterdam and I'm not in Amsterdam. So, yeah. the, the, you know, the, the work that's happening there is amazing. And yes, yeah. I do get to see it at the Barbican when it comes here, if it comes here. Um, but you know, I don't get to see other things. You know, think things that happened at um, the the Berliner Ensemble. We, you know, I've been able to see work there in this last year that I wouldn't have. You know, some of it's twenty years old, so you know, definitely wouldn't have been able to see it. So yes, that is a great resource um, and a great ability to do that. But also, yeah, I don't want to lose that liveness, that that live yeah. aspect of it. I mean, I absolutely like for also financial reasons. There's been a lot of plays that I haven't been able to see. Um, and I suddenly finally got the chance to see them and that was incredible but at the same Mm. time I was watching those and I was like such a shame because I know it would have been so much better if I'd actually been there Um, but you know it's it's an incredible opportunity to find to to be able to watch them from the comfort of our own home and Mm. you know sometimes being able to pause stuff is not a bad thing either yeah Um, (laughs) just take a little break whenever you need to and then get back into it and you have to remember a lot of them. I mean, uh, National Theatre is diff- National Theatre Live is different because it w- it was filmed specifically to be streamed or or to be seen in cinemas. Yeah. But a, lo- a lot of the things I've been watching, they weren't originally originally filmed 
to for this purpose they were filmed for other reasons and we're getting the benefit of 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 them now so so maybe that will change maybe the the feeling like you're in the room will mm. come with with better or more, more considered filmmaking maybe yeah I think a lot of theatres will rethink a lot of things after this, like the amount of extra people that have been able to see their work after this whole situation um, has been immense. And it's so amazing that we've been able to bring theatre to more people. And I think the theatres are going to rethink the way they're going to share their work. Hmm. So it won't, I don't think we'll ever go back to just being live theatre. I think there will always be options to do or people will think better ways and new ways to share things online as well. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, we're coming up to the end um, here, Lizanne. I, it's, oh got, it's flown by, but I do want to ask you about one more thing before we get to the 60 seconds. Um, you've been working hard to raise awareness and money for charities like the Cure Parkinson's Trust. Um, can you tell us about the work that you've done to aid this charity and fight the disease? Um, so. I, start, I started fundraising for the Parkinson's Trust because my mother got diagnosed with Parkinson's when uh, actually the, the summer that I was meant to go to England, and I did go to England, um, she got diagnosed that summer, and she got diagnosed seven years too late uh, because they thought it was stress. So this is definitely a disease that needs a lot more attention and a lot more uh, help. Like there's so many different methods now to help people. And I thought I need to raise money and do stuff for this. So I've done several concerts. I've done uh, like a monologue night where I have loads of performers performing different monologues. Um, I'm planning to do uh, like an, an opera night as well at some point, hopefully next year. Um, and I think it's like one in 500 people has Parkinson's. That's a lot. Um, and it's uh, for some, like luckily for my mother, it's quite her symptoms are mild, so she can live with it very well. But that might change very quickly. Um, I know a lot of people as well that suffer with it really badly, who cannot sit still on their chair or are in pain all day. It is just a very frustrating and and horrible disease because you feel like a prisoner in your own body, like your body is not doing what you want it to do um and there's no cure for it there's medication which often is like you take pills but then you take like another six pills to take the side effects of the other pill and then another pill to take the side effects of that pill so people end up with like a whole cocktail of pills every day um, and there need to be better ways to to sort that out um so yeah i'm working for like quite regularly on trying to find ways to help that and to, to play my part in fixing this thing that my mother who I'm very close to suffers from so badly of course I probably won't fix it in her lifetime but well I think I think others. it's really commendable that you're you're doing this work um how can people find out about the work that you have done um for this uh, they can go to my website, so lizanvanoverbeek.co.uk, where you'll find a section from Over the Pond Productions, so I do it through that, uh, and then called Limitless. So Limitless is sort of where I try to do all my work for Parkinson's, um, because Parkinson's is so limited, so I wanted to find the opposite of that. Um, and yeah, and go to the Cure Parkinson's Trust. They are absolutely incredible. And they do so much amazing work for Parkinson's and are really trying to, to find something and are making incredible strides within like what is scientifically possible. Uh, they've already found different ways that potentially can reverse all the symptoms. So yeah, definitely have a look at that. Um, and if you can help financially or you can do a run or you can do a concert or you can do a bake sale, you know, anything helps. Like. It's so easy to just, you can do anything and anything will make a difference. Like every pound will make a difference. So, yeah. Amazing. Um, I definitely think you've earned that title of activist um, that I said at the beginning there, Lizanne.
Well, that does bring us to the end. Um, that means we have to do the 60 second challenge. Um, oh my goodness. Okay. Do you think you're ready? I am ready. I'm going to smash this. Yeah, great. So, so uh, <laughs> 16 is to beat. Now you and Alice, before we begin, you and Alice are actually quite close, aren't you? Yeah, we are. Yeah. So <laughs> you've got to beat Alice. Um, do you think I mean, you can do that's it? That's a tricky thing to do. She's <laughs> she's basically good at everything that she does. Um, so I'll do my best. <laughs> so the rules are simple. I think you've listened to the podcast before, so you, you've heard it happen. But um, I'm going to ask you some quick fire questions. Please answer them as fast as you can so we can beat Alice and get over 16. Uh, we want to get over 16 um, in 60 seconds. You can pass, but those questions won't uh, won't add to your final score uh, we'll add it with score and we'll add you to the leaderboard and find out where you are um, on that leaderboard um, normally i'd have ricky to uh, honk his air horn um, but he's not here today so i'm just gonna have to put it in post so you'll hear an air horn when you listen back to the podcast but i'm just gonna have to stop you um, and we'll pretend we heard an air horn okay does that Sounds all make good. sense yeah yeah um okay are you ready lazanne Oh, I'm ready. Here we go. <laughs> 60 seconds on the clock. Lausanne, beer or wine? Beer. What's your party trick? Uh, pass. What's your favourite word? Hello. Uh, what's your first job? Uh, I, um, uh, waitress. What was your favourite subject at school? Maths. Uh, cat or dogs? Cat. If you were given the chance to explore the oceans, go to outer space or visit 50 countries, which would you choose? Visit 50 countries. Uh, if you had to eat one thing for every meal going forward, what would it be? Pasta. If you could win an Olympic medal for any sport, real or fake, what would it be? Ice skating. Uh, movies or theatre? Movies. A theatre. Uh, what job would you be th terrible at? Uh, anything in a, a restaurant. Do you prefer too hot or too cold? Too hot. What's your most used emoji? Smiley face. Uh, the, if past lives were real, what was yours? Uh, I, I would live in the Tudor era. Uh, tea or coffee? Tea. Coffee. What? Coffee. Um, I'm really sorry. That is, no! That's 60 seconds there. Ding-a-ling-a-ling. -a -ling. Um, okay. Now let's add up your score. Lizanne, how many do you think you got? I was struggling there. I kept saying just the wrong thing. Um, I think I got about 11. You think you got 11, so you think yeah. you didn't beat I... Alice. Okay. Um, I mean, 16 is a lot to get in 60 seconds. Um, it is a lot. I, I can't do the maths in my head, but there's like about two seconds a question, right? And you had a really long question in there as well, so that doesn't that doesn't help you. Um, so, Lizanne, you got 14. You got 14 in 60 seconds. So that I mean, means... it's something to be proud of. That is really, that is really good. That means you're second equal your second equal um no you're not you're third i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> i'm really not doing very well at remembering these scores am i um so you're third you're third out of all eight that uh that we've had on the podcast so far so that's you know pretty good top you know top third of the of the listeners of the of the panelists so that's really good um, i get a bronze medal right <laughs> At the moment, yeah, we'll, we'll send it in the post once we we'll, once we we'll finish this season. <laughs> um, well, Lizanne, a huge thank you for being with us today. Uh, it's been fantastic to talk to you. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you on social media and your website? Uh, they can find me on my website, so lizannevanoverbeek.co.uk. I am on social media if you just type in my name on Instagram and on Twitter as well. Amazing. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Um, it's been great to talk. Uh, thank you for tuning in. We will, be we will be back next week with another Spotlight On podcast. Until then, find out how you can get creative and get involved with our year of exploration by checking out our Facebook page, Twitter profile at Lazarus Theatre and bits and bobs on our Instagram at Lazarus Theatre. All the details can be found on our website, www.lazarustheatre.com. I've been Gavin Harrington Adidra, and until next time, stay safe and stay well. Lazarus Theatre Company is a not-for-profit organisation that relies on the generous support of our friends, angels and principal supporters. If you wish to support this podcast or any of the work Lazarus Theatre Company is doing, you can visit the Lazarus Supporters page on our website, lazarustheatre.com forward slash Lazarus supporters, or you can send any amount to 
paypal.me forward slash Lazarus Theatre. Every bit counts. You have been listening to the Spotlight On podcast hosted by Ricky Dukes and Gavin Harrington Odedra, produced by Lazarus Theatre Company. The music you've been listening to is composed by Bobby Locke and is from our 2016-2017 production of the Caucasian Chalk Circle by Bertile Brandt.